Let's turn together to John 16. John 16, as we continue to receive encouragement from the Word of God. We've been encouraged by these songs filled with Scripture. Now we can be encouraged directly from the Scriptures themselves. John 16, we'll be looking specifically at verses 16 to 24. Actually, if you do that, we're going to be looking at the same text as last week. <laughs> Verses 25 to 33. John 16, 25 to 33. I'll read for us. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Confession. It's hard for me to make with my wife and children sitting over there. I am... um, or was, in high school and college, a mediocre athlete. You understand why that's hard to confess in front of your kids? They asked me that the other day, like, Dad, were you a good basketball player? I was like, well, I had my day. You know, like, (laughs) really vague. I wasn't terrible. I wasn't terrific. I started, I'd score points and whatever it was I was doing, but like, um, I wasn't the guy. Nobody, I mean, (laughs) my parents, this is how sad it was. If you go to my house, my parents' house, there's like this little article, it's about this big, it's a box score, um, where I scored like 22 points in a game, but it's this big. And it was like, but it's framed. (laughs) I, um, I think there's several reasons for that. I grew up in a small town going to an even smaller school. There were probably only 600 kids in the, in the whole school from um, elementary all the way to high school. I, I didn't have access to, you know, like what a lot of kids around here have access to. It seems like people get started at six years old in some kind of league these days. Um, both of my parents were working 
We just, we didn't do stuff as, as kids. So I didn't get started early. Another thing that hurt me, especially as a teenager, uh, you would think it would help, but I was tall uh, and uncoordinated. Erica's shaking her head. She knows the experience. It's one thing to be tall and coordinated. It's something else just to be tall and clumsy. And that was me. So that would produce this, this mediocrity would produce this crisis in me on an almost weekly basis because there'd be the next game. And where it seemed like some people were just like up and ready for the game, I would dread the game. Like I'd pretend because of all my buddies that, you know, like this was, yeah, this is going to be awesome. But I literally remember before basketball games, like walking around on the soccer field outside in the winter in North Carolina, like praying to God that I wouldn't blow it. I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of the school. And I played like that. I played scared. Um, I could get some stuff done, but not that great. It was just psychological torture. And I share that highly personal experience with you in an attempt to get um, a window into the world of this text and maybe where it overlaps with your own experience. Uh, Maybe you in here today could identify with such insecurity. That nervousness that comes when you know you're not that great. Maybe it's not athletics. Uh, Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's the community. Maybe it's your work. Maybe even it's church. Like you show up to church and you're thinking, I don't know that I'm supposed to be here. And it's not just uh, church. The, the more concerning one is our relationship with Christ. I've said this multiple times over recent weeks, but it seems that many of us are walking around with this like reticence in our relationship with God. It's like we know that it's off, like something's wrong. It's, we, we, can, we feel more comfortable saying things like, well, it's not where it should be. Rather than saying, things are great between me and the Lord right now. I think we, we trend toward the unconfident, toward the, the distant. We're not bad, but we're not great. And there's this discouragement, I think, that, that categorizes or characterizes, excuse me, many a Christian. Sometimes it's expressed, and maybe you know this, by, uh, by shutting down and pulling back. You show up to church, but you're quiet. You sit in your spot. You, you get there late. You leave early. You, you don't really want to engage. When people are like saying, hey, come to a small group or come minister in this way, you're kind of like, ah, I don't know that I would really have anything to contribute. Some are more of the quiet temperament, and so they pull back. Uh, Some are of an opposite temperament. Uh, You're outgoing naturally, and so you fake it even if you don't make it. You just, you cheese it, you smile, you act like it's the best day ever. You can talk a good talk, you're very conversational, and yet on the inside you may just be hollow. 
<laughs> you, you feel ultimately that it's, it's not real. I want you to know that if you lack that kind of confidence, not just at church, but more particularly in your relationship with Christ, you are finding yourself even now squarely in the position of the disciples in this particular text. It would be hard to find a group of more insecure men than the eleven that have been spoken to in these chapters. They are scared to death. They've had this standard discipleship plan, if you will, led by their Lord, Jesus, and it is upset by this unsettling time that for them came out of the blue. Jesus has been trying to tell them, but now it's getting real. I'm going to die and I'm going to depart. Talk about like having the rug pulled out from underneath you. Like they totally lack confidence. They do not know how to proceed. And so Jesus takes this time in the upper room to actually encourage them, to infuse them with courage. He wants them to be confident. And that's why we even call it, think about this for a moment, the farewell discourse. We think of the word farewell like see ya. Think of what it actually is. Farewell. I hope that you fare well in my absence. I hope that you do well when I'm not here anymore. So over and over again, through chapters 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus is telling them the things that they'll need to know to not just survive his absence, but actually to thrive in it. He intends that for them. And we saw that in the closing illustration Last week where he says, look, there's going to be a little time where indeed it's going to be devastating, but then there's going to be a little time after that, and it's going to be fantastic, and it's going to be characterized by joy, and it's going to be characterized by answered prayer, and it's in that flow that we find ourselves now. He is coming to the conclusion of this farewell discourse, and picking up on some of the themes of last week, he ultimately is going to try to infuse them with confidence one last time from two more sources. Two sources of Christian confidence in this text, especially if you sometimes find yourself to be insecure. What are the sources of confidence for those who follow Christ even when he is physically absent? The first is closeness with the Father. What Christ would do on the cross in those few moments would provide closeness with the Father you see that in verses 25 to 28 again. Notice Jesus acknowledging, by the way, as we make our way to this text, he's acknowledging how some of the things that he's been telling them have been hard to understand. Don't you appreciate that? Like you read this and you're like, I don't get it. Hey, they didn't either. And Jesus actually says, I haven't been that clear. Look at what verse 25 says. I have said these things to you, and figures of speech. The word uh, figures of speech is just the Greek word for obscure language. Like it was kind of fuzzy, kind of vague. It's like uh, politicians around primary time. They say stuff and they're, they're saying something. You just don't know exactly what they're saying. It sounds really nice. Jesus is saying that he did that on purpose. 
He's actually using intensely, I mean, intentionally vague language with them because he knows that they can't get it. They can't receive it. They're not ready for what he's got to say. Look back at verse 12. You're in chapter 16. Just move your eyes over a little bit. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He knows that they're not ready for everything he has to say. We do this all the time, do we not? We soften our language. We, we become a little more vague on purpose, knowing that some people aren't ready to hear what they need to hear yet. I think of children learning of the miracle of life. It's not a time to be explicit. It's a time to be vague. There will be a time to be explicit. Or when a loved one dies. If there's a tragic death of a loved one, what's the first thing that somebody normally says? Hey, there's been an accident. Something terrible happened. Or to try to explain death even to a child who's not ready to hear it. What do you say about a believer? Hey, they went to be with Jesus. We don't disclose all the graphic details of the particular situation. We understand that that teaching moves from the abstract to the concrete. Jesus here Because this message about him dying and departing is so graphic for them, it's so hard to hear. He's been somewhat vague, and what he says is when this new time comes, when this thing happens that I say is that I've been promising will happen, like you're going to then understand. Continue reading in verse 25. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. That was Jesus' whole point, right? He, he was the Word. He was the one that expressed the Father. Remember John chapter 1, the introduction to this thing? Like, He would be the one who was God and with God who entered into the human realm to make God known. He's saying, look, I'm going to tell you about the Father in a way that's so crystal clear. It's coming, and it's coming in this thing that you will hate the most. And what is he pointing to ultimately? What is it that would be the clearest picture of God Almighty? His Son, crucified on behalf of sinners, dead three days, rising again. That's the clearest picture of God. He said, I'm going to communicate so plainly. It's not even going to be words. It's going to be in straight up actions. You want to know what God's like. You are about to see it. And as a result of that, look at verse 26. In that day, notice what's going to take place now. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Well, that's... Interestingly, he's still in the phase, by the way, of confusing language. Because when I read that, I'm like, what does that mean? (laughs) The double negative. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Basically, Jesus is saying here that after that day, after this coming moment that's going to cause you sorrow, that's going to bring the world joy, in that new phase after I am resurrected from the dead, they don't know that yet, but they will know it, Something new will take place. And that new thing is that they will be able to talk to the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, I want to throw a flag for a second because, like, I think when I read this that there's really nothing new going on because he's saying, in that day you're going to be able to ask the Father in my name. And I'm thinking, didn't people in the Old Testament pray to the Father? 
I mean, Jesus is saying that you're going to be able to pray now directly to the Father without intermediary. And I'm thinking like, when I read the book of Psalms, there's 150 of them, and it sounds like every one of them are prayers directly to God. When I read the prophets, it seems like to me that they're going directly to God already. I've been reading through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, my own devotions. I see David launching prayers to God on a regular basis. What's so new... (laughs) What's so great about this new day, post-resurrection of Jesus? What's so special about that? Well, notice what he says. It's not that you can talk to the Father. He says that you can talk to the Father in my name. You could talk to the Father with the expectation that he will listen to you as he would listen to me, his perfect son from all eternity. In the Old Testament, when people were praying, they were praying to God as the one who was high and holy and strong and mighty, but they didn't really have guarantee that he would answer. It was truly a prayer. It was like the Hail Mary pass at the end of a football game. Maybe it'll connect. We hope God will answer. We hope he will work. But now it's going to be prayer in the name of Jesus, which means like when you come to him, It is as if you were Jesus yourself. Um, The the Reformers had a way of preaching that is a little different than what we would do in our day. In fact, if you look through church history, it seems that uh, people were willing to be way more creative than we are when reading their Bibles. A good example of this is John Calvin. He, uh, he preaches this interesting message on uh, Genesis 27, and if you're not familiar with that, that's where Jacob and Esau, you know, they're battling with one another, and Jacob dresses up like Esau, remember? He, like, puts fur on his hands, and, like, and you know, like he sneaks into his father's presence, and his father is so pleased with the older son that, like, he just, he makes these promises, And yet they apply to Jacob because it's Jacob, even though he thinks it's Esau. Well, here's what Calvin did. This was fantastically creative. I don't know that it's authoritative. Calvin, pulling from another church father by the name of Ambrose, says, What a picture of us entering the presence of God, smelling like our older brother, Jesus. God answers prayers as if we are him. Now, I think that's terrible hermeneutics. But the concept is interesting, is it not? Jesus is saying, now when you enter into the Father's presence, you will wear the aroma of Jesus. It is not just you are a son. It is as if you are the son. That death and that resurrection would bring about a new closeness with the Father to the degree that Jesus goes on to say, and this is that confusing line, he says, look, you're you're not even going to have to basically ask me to ask him. You're going to be able to go directly to the Father. Another flag could be flown here. Well, I thought Jesus was our great intercessor. Jesus' intercession, for those of you who are theologically astute, means that he makes it possible for us to enter into his presence. 
Priests would offer sacrifices that would open up the ears of God, if you will. Jesus has offered the sacrifice that opens up the ears of the Father. It's not as if we're praying to Jesus who's talking to the Father on our behalf. He's saying, now, because of what's going to take place in my death and resurrection, you will come directly as the Son. You will come in my name, and you'll ask for whatever you need. And notice what he's going to add to this. He says, the Father himself will answer because he loves you. He himself loves you. See that in verse 27? The Greek is emphatic, as is the English. It's not that the Father just loves the Son. The Father himself, he loves you. He includes you. There's a new closeness now that should give you some confidence. Like when you pray to God, he is open, expectant, desirous even to answer your prayer. He wants to meet the needs of his children. I, um, I can't help but think uh, that some of us, uh, for better or worse, we just, with Father's Day coming up, I, I say this mildly, we've got some dad issues. Like everybody can point to issues that they had with their father. They knew that the relationship wasn't what it needed to be. I'm sure my children could think the same of me. Some were good, but not perfect. Some were not that good. And the problem is we take that baggage and we like naturally import it into our understanding of God as if he might somehow be the same way. This is not that. He doesn't, this father doesn't accept you on the basis of your merits, of your performance, but on the basis of the performance of his true and perfect son. And things are always good. That's why verse 28 is there. Jesus is saying, Hey, in verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and because you've believed that I came from God. You've expressed affectionate faith toward me. You're connected to me. And here's the deal. If you're connected to me, I've finished the job. All is well. Look at verse 28. I came from the Father, have come into the world. I've come into the fallen human realm. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is ever by the side of the Father, assuring us that we have intimate audience with Him. We don't don't think this. We don't sing this way anymore. We don't even sing this way. um, It's interesting. I just had somebody tell uh, me through another that they liked the preaching at our church, but they thought uh, the music was lame. Uh, that was not the first time I've heard that. I probably hear that every six to eight months or so. Like, oh, the preaching's good, but the music's lame. Um, you know, that's not, by the way, me critiquing Mark while he's not here. <laughs> um, I'm the one that picks the music. <laughs> Surprise! So they were trying to pay me a compliment, and um, yeah, what I ultimately got was a critique. And normally what people are saying in that is it's not like, oh, the words are terrible. They're like, man, I just didn't feel it. You know, I wanted to feel the thing. And I get it. We've grown up in American Christianity that's made everything a consumer event. 
And so you listen to a certain radio station like all week long and you're expecting to hear that same vibe when you get here and it's like, oh, this is disappointing. But let me tell you a danger in that. Like I get it. I've gone to churches and whined because I didn't get the music that I wanted either. So we're all in the same boat. By the way, time out. Somebody told me this great wisdom. Anytime you sing a song at church that you enjoy, somebody else is sacrificing their Christian liberty for you to enjoy it. But back to the quandary here. We don't sing about this kind of access anymore. And frankly, I would love to have sung maybe a couple different songs today. But the, the tone and the tempo would have been so slow that some of you probably would have walked out. The one in mind is by uh, Charles Wesley. And it's called Arise, My Soul, Arise. I just want to read you a few of the verses. Just listen to what we could have sang this morning if we all had more concern for the words over the feel of the song. We could have been reminding ourselves of this. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. Next verse. He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood was shed for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. It gets better. Let's just keep going. Five bleeding wounds he bears. You're thinking, what are those? And the side. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. All right, one more, please. Just they keep going, by the way. I mean, we're talking like this kind of theology used to be like a part of the church. This was the stuff that people sang in their heart. One more. This is good. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. Friends, that is true of you today, now, always. And you know what got the job done? It wasn't because you practiced really, really hard or you psyched yourself up for the spiritual game. It was because Jesus already played and won for you. He said, I left heaven, entered the world, accomplished the mission, and went back up again, and the Father received me, and as he has received me, so also he will receive all of those who are united to me. And how are we united to him? How is one connected to Jesus? He says, oh, the Father loves the one who affectionately believes in him, who trusts in him alone. That's what the text says. What connects you to these benefits that Jesus has accomplished in his life and death and resurrection? Nothing but your trust. It's the reception of these good things. And that's why I like the title of the song, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Like, get up, go to the Father. It's where you belong. He receives you. If you feel distant as a follower of Christ, hear me. If you feel distant, if you're like, I don't know that I belong, the facts say otherwise. The feelings may say, 
stay away. The facts say, enter in. That's why we need this reminder every week, friends. That's part of the reason why we keep showing up at church, because we go all week long and you just keep getting told, not worthy, not worthy, fail, 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 missed it. And you come back and you're reminded of good news. Christ has accomplished this. I have special access to the Father. That's why early church, by the way, did communion every week. Because they needed even the tangible reminder that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for them and they receive. I was talking with one believer several years ago who told me, I haven't had communion in five years. They've been coming to church, but they said they haven't done communion in five years. I was like, what is going on? Long story short, the person told me they were struggling with sin and didn't feel that they were worthy to come. And I was kindly, I mean, I wanted to like yell it, but it would have been a little intimidating. (laughs) I was kindly able to point out, that's why his body was broken, and that's why his blood was shed, because you struggle with sin. That's the whole point of why he died. That's why you need that reminder. There's a closeness now that we have with the Father, and that should give us confidence in our week to come and in our life whenever it may end. And may I say this to those of you who are here who absolutely, you know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that you do not have that confidence. You still sometimes lie awake at night wondering if you do have a relationship with the Father. You're not sure that you're a Christian. May I say this to you kindly? Do, do, you, even, do you see your need for Him? Do you see your need for the Son? If so, here's what, what takes place next so that you could enjoy that salvation. If you see your need for him, you just grab onto him by faith. You're like a drowning individual. The instinct here should be to cling to the life preserver who is Christ. Now, something amazing has happened for there to be even a spiritual struggle in your soul because you went for decades in some cases and didn't even know that you needed him. But for some of you now, this is becoming clear. I would say to you, just cling to Christ by faith alone now. Don't wait for some more convenient season. Receive Him. Don't redouble your efforts at salvation. He has done the saving. And i got to say this. There may be some of you in here today who think you're a Christian Some of you know you're a Christian. Some of you think you're a Christian because you identify as a Christian, to use our modern terminology. Uh, Friends, I just want you to know that if you think you're a Christian because you somehow do religious things, or you have taken advantage of other intermediaries like a priest or whatever who have supposedly given you access to God, I want you to know that there is nothing else that you can add into what Jesus has done that will actually save you. I'm I'm concerned about the term Christian, but I know what, what we mean by it because it sounds like religion. And when I hear religion, I hear do some good ritualistic Christian-y kind of things, and then that's how I can get Jesus. That's not what we're saying here. We're not saying you do a few religious things and receive. It is just receive. First, confidence. This is awesome. 
You're close to the Father because of what Jesus has done. There's a second source of confidence in this text. We could call it conquest by the Son. The first source of confidence is closeness with the Father. The second source of confidence is conquest by the Son. This encourages insecure Christians. Look, look at verse 29. These few verses take an unexpected turn, and, and notice what the disciples say in response to Jesus. Ah, you're now speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now, time out for a second. Jesus has just told them over and over and over again, there's going to be a time that's going to come, and it's going to be confusing and disorienting, and it's going to be filled with sorrow, and then there's going to be a little time after that, and then all of a sudden things will get better, and I will make it known to you. Now, if they're just listening, if they're just paying attention, they know that now is not that time. Now is not the time for clarity. Jesus is saying, I will eventually make this really clear. But like most insecure people do, especially men, these guys actually decide that they're going to fake it till they make it. So they say, hey, we get it. This is awesome. The time has come. We're already in this new season. How great it is. We believe that you are from God indeed because you were able to guess our question before we ever expressed it. Remember that in the uh, last week? They were all asking secretly to one another, hey, what does he mean by a little while? What does he mean by a little while? And Jesus says, I think you're wanting to know what I mean by a little while. <laughs> so they actually say, oh, well, only God could do something like that. Only somebody from God could do that. And they're like, hey, look, let's just skip all the sorrow spots parts, and let's just get straight to the joy. Lesson learned. We're there. No more exam needed. It's like a, it's like a kid at the beginning of the school year. Like, I got this. I got no exam needed. Just trust me. I understand. No homework needed. So Jesus asked this kind of sarcastic question back. <laughs> Notice it in your, in your text. He says in verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Really? You now believe. You already believe everything that I'm telling you is going to happen, even though I haven't clearly told you that it's going to happen, but you think I've clearly told you. Do you now believe? Notice what, how he continues. Behold, pay attention, wise up. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. If they really believed in their heart that Jesus was going to be crucified, they would not, they would not have run for the hills when it actually happened. Jesus is telling them, like, you don't get it, because you're going to fail. You're not ready. I'm telling you you're going to fail. Oh, there's a cool heads up. Is it that nice to know? <laughs> Like when you feel like you're faltering, when you feel like you're failed, that Jesus actually already said, by the way, that's going to happen. That's inevitable. But even though you're going to forsake me, even though you're going to abandon me, even though you're going to temporarily leave me, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. Hey guys, it's really cute that you want to skip the process and get this thing over with, but this is actually a me and the Father job. And the Father is going to ensure that this thing takes place. He will be with me. 
And indeed, the Father was with him through the entire thing, except for the one moment where the Father was required to abandon the Son on account of sin, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did indeed experience separation from God so that we would not have to, but God was there up to that act and right after it because it says in Acts chapter 2, clarifying that it was God's plan for him to be crucified, but also it was God's plan for him to be raised from the dead. The Father raised the Son from the dead. He was with them. They finished the job. And so this is what Jesus is doing here. Despite their claims to have this all figured out, he says, look, I'm telling you this, verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. They kind of want peace on the basis of their own religious striving. Like, hey, we get the lesson. We're kind of smart guys. We can stay up with what you're teaching. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you all this stuff. I'm telling you that you're going to fail. I'm telling you that it's going to be terrible. Because you must have peace in me. If The word peace, beautiful. I love it. This makes you wish you spoke Hebrew all the time. Shalom. Shalom. Wholeness. Health. We think of peace normally as like the absence of hostility, like things have moved to neutral. In the Jewish mind, peace meant like to be complete, to be whole. He says, you will have peace. You will have wholeness in me. Notice how he continues. In the world, you will have tribulation. Do you see the contrast? In me, you will have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. In this world, with its whole fallen system and a bunch of people who hate God, look, just go ahead and count on it. You will experience problems insofar as you're in the world. And again, another helpful reminder, because like when I leave church on Sundays, typically I know what it's like to experience tribulation. You know what Mondays are like. He says, hey, just expect it. In the world, you will have tribulation, but I'm telling you this so that you'll find your peace in me. How? I mean, the world's so strong. It's like, it's like swimming out in the riptide. Like, it just always seems, seems to get its way. It always seems to prevail. You look at legislation that gets passed. You look at the kind of people that get in office. Uh, you look at the people who end up in charge of certain companies, and you're like, how is it that it seems like the world is always winning and we're always losing? This is what Jesus is acknowledging. He says, look, indeed, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I love that. Take heart. Be encouraged. We think that's just a throwaway phrase, by the way. He's telling them, like, work up courage that's already in there. Like, stir up the truth that's in there. Speaking of sports. It's like the team, like, right before the game starts. And they, like, do the chant. And they, like, jump up and down. And they're, like, pepping themselves up for the game. Jesus is saying, all right, get yourself up for the game. On the basis of what? I have overcome the world. Everything that the powers of hell could throw at me in my 33 years on earth, I have overcome. It doesn't get any worse. 
in first century Palestine than to have the Jewish religious elite and the Roman government conspiring together to crucify you. And Jesus is speaking with the surety that of something that won't happen until four days later. I've already overcome the world. This is a done deal. The worst that hell could throw at me, I have overcome, and you belong to me. Therefore, seek your peace, seek your wholeness, not in the world, how much money you make, how popular you can be, how high the ladder you can climb. That's going to be a recipe for tribulation. You want to know where peace is? You find your peace in me. Because I've overcome the world. I'm the one that has been victorious. He transfers uh, their desire for victory from themselves to him and himself. Friends, we may feel the heat of the battle, but he has already won the war. That's what he's saying. Last year, uh, June 19th, 2021, became the first time that Juneteenth traditionally an African-American holiday, became a national holiday. I remember I was flipping through my Apple calendar, and it just puts certain dates on there, some of which I don't care about. Um, I'm like, wow, when did that become a holiday? And and one of them is like, I just see it this week, um, June 1st marks the beginning of LGBTQ plus pride something or another. Like, it's this long thing on my calendar listing. I'm like, how do I delete that? I can't. <laughs> um, the same thing is, is uh, interesting. Like I, I see this new event show up on my calendar, Juneteenth, and I'm like, what, what is that? Just, I didn't know. Look it up. It's a fascinating holiday. I'm actually glad that it's become a national holiday. Many of you know that the Emancipation Proclamation uh, was signed uh, two and a half years before it actually fully took effect. In fact, the Civil War had been officially over for two and a half months before the news of freedom, emancipation for slaves, made it to Galveston, Texas, where the last slaves would be legally officially liberated, even though they had already been declared free. They just didn't know it yet. Juneteenth. June the 19th. It's it's when it became official. What's so fascinating to me about this text is that we sometimes are like experiencing this war with the world, and we think that we're losing, and we think that we're in its dominion, and we know the tribulation, and yet the victory has already been signed by Jesus. Like the freedom is already there. It's just for some of us, it's like we haven't heard the news yet. It's like it hasn't even made it into our realm. Like we step into the world thinking this is terrible. Oh man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Man, it's so horrible. Man, you don't just know how bad it is. I get my butt kicked every week when I'm going out there with all these unsafe people who hate Jesus. And we just run it up about how terrible it is. And yet the reminder here from Jesus is, yes, you will have tribulation, but the war is won. Victory is already present. 
He is actually wanting them to change their perspective. Yes, in the world you have tribulation, but in me you have peace, wholeness, wellness, health. So don't look for it in the world. It's a rigged game, friends. It's like a stinking carnival game at the fair. You will, not, you will think that you can win the big prize, and you will not. And you'll keep trying, and you'll keep trying. And Jesus is saying, look, stop. Just stop that. Those are terrible games. Find your peace. Find your wholeness. Find the win in me. That should give you confidence. So we acknowledge that the struggle is real. Yes, we do experience pain in the fight against sin. And we do expect problems from peers around us. And we do expect pressure from a society ruled by those who rebel against God. That Wake up and smell the coffee. That's the way it is. But even if you are stuck in that world, as we all are, you still have opportunity to take courage, to stir yourself up, to get ready for the game by finding peace in Jesus who has overcome the world. You rouse yourself. I still remember it. Growing up, in a little southern church, eastern North Carolina, we'd sing from the same hymn book every week. And I have two hymn numbers memorized. Hymn number 58, Majesty, you wouldn't know it, we don't sing it. Second one, hymn number 317, you would know. Victory in Jesus. I think we sing Victory in Jesus every week. I mean, every stinking week. (laughs) And yet I wish I would have known what it was about. We may not sing it in this congregation, but it seems to me, friends, in light of this verse, we should be singing every week, victory in Jesus. Like, not, not playing the game as if, like, we're mediocre and we're going to trip all over ourselves and if this thing's going to be a hot mess, but stepping into the game with the confidence that Jesus has already won. Unlike the carnival games that are rigged against you, when you step into this world looking for hope in Jesus, it's rigged for you to win. His purposes will be accomplished. I guess the heart of this text is for us all to take fresh courage when fearful. Maybe you've heard these lines before. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. If you've never heard those lines, you've heard them now. Fearful Christians, insecure Christians, unconfident Christians, the ones who tend to view everything as working against you. The old hymn says, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread, the things that you think are terrible, the things that you think are against you, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. That comes from a a hymn writer by the name of William Cooper. He had an interesting history. Cooper was mistreated uh, as a child in England, uh, six years old. Uh, his, His mother died. He was raised by his father, who by all accounts seemed to be a pretty harsh man, maybe even abusive. 
Uh, the father was a pretty hard-driving guy as well. Maybe you can identify he was determined that his son would be a lawyer, and so he sent him through law school, made him finish. And then Cooper himself would drop out of law by the time he was 30 because of, of mental pressures. He battled depression acutely. He had four different bouts of depression that totally bottomed him out. At one point, even ended up in an insane asylum, And in the 1800s, this was a terrible prospect. And so at the lowest of possible moments, he would actually, at the asylum, go out into the courtyard and found a Bible. Reading John 11 in particular, he was converted. And God began to do a work in his life to see him redeemed, restored. And yet, and yet, hear me, Cooper could never shake the melancholy. He still had this tendency to struggle. He would be exposed to uh, the writings and sermons of a man named John Newton, who you would know as the author of Amazing Grace. And so he would actually, when released from the asylum, move to Newton's parish and become a member of his church. Newton took a special interest in the guy because he found that even though he was prone to this melancholy and this depression, he had a wonderful way of expressing some of the difficulties that normal, ordinary believers go through, especially in poem. And so, Newton would carry him along with him on ministry trips and actually take him visiting and encourage him to write, and even to the degree that they agreed to write a hymn book together. Newton would contribute over 200 hymns, Cooper only 20. But one of those is that famous poem, those lines from which the earlier verses were taken. You would know it as God moves in a mysterious way. Here's a guy subject to a lack of confidence, subject to seeing the negative side of things, who actually, through the ministry of another, would remind himself and others that even when fearful, even when struggling, even when doubting, the things that seem like they would destroy us ultimately could be the source of our blessing and encouragement. And so I tell you, friends, that this advice to take courage, To feel strong in Christ, to actually exercise confidence in Jesus, isn't just for those who have this cheery, upbeat disposition. It's for any and all who follow Jesus. Fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Some of you this morning are experiencing an advantage because you know yourself to be insecure. And so you're like, oh, this is me. I need this. I need need this closeness with the Father. I need to experience that, remind myself of that. I need this conquest by the Son. I need to remind myself of that. But some of you are like, hey, me, I'm good. I'm not one of those insecure spiritual losers. I'm I'm a confident, self-made Christian. Um, You may need this more than you think. Sometimes discouragement characterizes an insecure Christian. Sometimes bravado does. It 
Some people express their insecurity in Christ by opening up, pushing forward, faking it. I came across a fascinating article by someone explaining this tendency within Christians, and I just want to hit some highlights for you, especially if you find yourself in the confident category. Let's just make sure that confidence is in Christ. When we are actually insecure, what we do is we find uh, security in something or someone other than Christ. So we're always looking at our feelings, our abilities, our experiences, our knowledge, our zeal, our authenticity, our ministry, but not Christ. That could be some of you. Where you say, yes, you feel like you're winning, not because of anything Jesus has done, but because of something you've done. It says, watch out. That's a sign of spiritual insecurity. The easy winds of externalism produce an atmosphere of little grief over sin. If you very rarely grieve over your sin, you may be insecure for finding security in all the wrong places. There's little joy in God. The joy is in the thrill of the next accomplishment, the next thing, the next stuff that people can clap for for you. Maybe this mindset is prevalent. Mistakes were made, but not by us, but not by me. This person can't admit to errors. And their self-dependence, by the way, is fertile soil for all kinds of anxiety. Hamster wheel, workaholic Christianity. In fact, the way that you can really tell that their security is not in Christ is they're really gossipy, and they love to talk terribly about others because it makes them look good. It validates them. They especially love to point out where people are off or wrong on other Christian matters so that they could have the Christian and moral high ground. They pander to individuals. They struggle to say no. They create a culture of fear around them since it's about a lifestyle of social improvement. The way they think, I pulled myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps. You need to get a job and do the same thing. You are not my problem. Toughen up. Vigorous in defending their own piety, they will lash out swiftly in judgment to others. And I'm quoting here from the article, not only pitiless but partisan, they eye others with suspicion for the minor differences that inevitably make them below them. Friends, this insecurity isn't just in the meek and the mild and the quiet. Sometimes it's in the loud and the boisterous and the proud. And you know what they need to know, what you may need to know? Let me tell you, I end up in this category often. You need to remember that your confidence is not in anything you do, but in what Christ has done in creating closeness with the Father and granting you conquest over the world secured only by Him. May I just ask two questions? I'll just let them hang. I'll give you time to reflect on them as we close. Have you ever experienced this type of confidence in Christ? Do you know what it's like to have this kind of joy? Not feeling like you're going to lose the game, but that you win. Not feeling like you're distant from God, but close. Do you know that? If you don't, I pray that you would place your faith and trust in Him today. Second question. Do you experience this confidence even now? 
Maybe you have experienced this in times past, but something's distracted you. Something's taken your eyes off of Jesus. I'll cry out to him in faith. We sang these words earlier, so good. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Is that your boast? Is that what you're proud of? Let's take a moment, bow our heads, close our eyes, and contemplate these things. I'll give you time to pray silently. And then we'll sing together a closing song of prayer and praise. Father, through your Spirit, speak to all who are present. Give those of us in Christ great joy now as we sing of his conquest and the closeness that he's provided. For those who don't know it, we pray that even through this song, they place their faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.